trials, facing opposition. They're really, uh, this is a letter to us, to God's people who are scattered in the midst of a world filled with unbelief and struggles and, and brokenness, explaining how we are to endure in a way that focuses us on Christ and allows us to grow. And so Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice... Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Amen. Brothers and sisters, beloved of our God through Christ, we as Christians are blessed beyond measure. And our exceptional blessedness is evident if we have eyes to see in every aspect of life, every stage of life, every day that we're given to live. I truly believe that. I mean, we have been given a relationship with God Himself who made us. In a world filled with death, we've been given the assurance of life eternal. We've been given the promise that our sins are forgiven and that we are being perfected even now. And God has declared, God, the maker of heaven and earth, the standard of what is right and holy and good, has declared that He loves us. That's amazing. That's a treasure beyond anything this world could even begin to offer. But... How do we reconcile that immense, overwhelming blessing with the struggles with which this life so often confronts us? Where is your blessedness when someone you love deeply is taken from you by death? Where is your blessedness when life devolves into drudgery and you dread even waking? Where is your blessing when your heart slogs through the day in the midst of depression or is filled with anxiety? How about, how about when you struggle to accomplish the most basic tasks each day because cancer has cast its dark shadow over your life? Where is the blessing 
When the person you love the most or the friend you long trusted betrays you. What comes of your blessing when you face those dark pits of grief and despair, of pain and disillusionment that so often haunt life in this fallen world? How do we reconcile those circumstances with the blessing that we see proclaimed in the pages of Scripture? Well, the Apostle Peter was no stranger to those griefs and sorrows and hardships and trials. And he knew that Christians the world over, until Christ returns, would continue to experience those griefs, would continue to experience those challenges. And therefore, in the first five verses of his letter, as we've seen, Peter reminded the church first who they are as the people chosen by God and strengthened by His mercy, and then of the immense grace that has been poured out upon us. And now, with verses 6 through 12, God's ambassador helps us to deal with the struggles of this age by pointing us beyond this age helps us to deal with the trials and the hardships of today by pointing us to the inheritance in eternity so that we can understand and live through these trials, these difficulties, with the proper perspective that allows us to rejoice and to recognize blessing even in the midst of them. The theme that we see in these verses is rather simple. And that is that we are to celebrate the inheritance of the saints despite the struggles and the hardships that we face, despite the woes that momentarily bring us down, we celebrate the inheritance of the saints. And he begins showing us that by pointing to the trials that confirm our faith, which is the first thing that we see here. Now it's important to note that our passage starts out talking about the joy of God's people. In this you rejoice. In this, that refers to everything that he has already said. Peter expects God's people to rejoice in the fact that God has has given them new life that's filled with hope. In the fact that, that God who chose them sent His Son to obtain eternal life for them. They rejoice in the fact that they have an inheritance that is preserved for them in heaven and that they are being preserved for that inheritance here on earth. He calls us to rejoice in the fact that we are awaiting a salvation that soon will be revealed. In all of this, he says, we rejoice. And well, should we rejoice? What he described in those first five verses comprises the greatest gift man has ever known. We have been rescued from our exile. Kids, I want you to think about this. When you were born, you were cut off from God. When you were still unborn, when you were still in your mother's womb, you had guilt that would have cut you off from God. You had a a corrupt nature that would have led you to sin in rebellion against the Lord. But God chose to rescue us. And not just to rescue us, not just to pay for our every sin but to knit us together into a new humanity whom He loves, whom He counts as His own beloved children. That's what He's given you. How can we not rejoice in that? And yet, 
Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That word rendered trials, it speaks of that which tests a person. The events that stretch your abilities, the times that try your patience, the circumstances that make you question your convictions. God's people were being grieved by various trials. We're not told the precise nature of those trials, and that's on purpose. Because Peter knew he was writing to a diverse people in diverse places, that the trials of each individual in each different church would vary. But what he knew is that they were grieved by those trials. That testing robbed them of their peace. That's something that God's people endure in every age and every place. We live in a world that is fallen. It's filled with sin and depravity. There is rebellion in all of the people who surround us. Sickness and disease, injury and death are part and parcel of the the life that we experience. So the trials and events that test us, we can expect that we will experience those throughout our lives. It's a grievous reality. It fills us with sorrow. We long to escape it, but there is no escape. It's a reality that we all face. And yet regardless... And yet, regardless, there is hope. In fact, right here at the beginning, when he points out those trials, he points to two details, or he uses two details that encourage us. Now, for a little while, you have been grieved. For a little while. The trials that afflict us, he wants us to see, cannot be permanent because those trials, whether a disease or a persistent sin or the consequence of a sin or the consequence of someone else's sin or a betrayal, those griefs are all part and parcel of a fallen world. And this world, as we saw this morning, is not going to be eternal in this form. Right? There is going to come a day, whether this week or two more millennia down the road. There is going to come a time when it all is cleansed. Every stain of sin, every instance of brokenness will be removed. Everything will be made absolutely perfect the way it was before sin intruded into the world. And that means that every one of our trials, it might, it might last just for a moment, It might be something that stretches out throughout the course of your life, but even so, it's just a little while. When you put it in the face of eternity, the longest lived among us, it's barely a blip on the radar screen in comparison with an eternity where a millennium, a thousand years, is as the blink of an eye. So there is light At the end of the tunnel, no matter what you're facing, no matter the hardship, no matter how heavy the cross that you bear, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and in that there is comfort. It's temporary. God will not let you be tested beyond what He can bear. Because He's the one who, as we saw in Psalm 91, is holding you up. So when you find yourself immersed in that painful test, hang on. 
Look to God for help. Rest in His care and be assured that He will empower you to handle it until the end and that end will come soon. Also notice the next phrase, if necessary. If you're enduring a trial, a time of testing in your life, it is necessary. Because our God is sovereign over everything. Nothing is able to happen apart from His sovereign command. So, if you're enduring some difficulty, if you've just received that that diagnosis that you thought would never be spoken of you, if that person you thought you could always count on suddenly turned against you, if you finally, that dark secret that you thought was buried under layer upon layer upon layer is suddenly brought out into the light... Understand this, that it was necessary according to God's sovereign purpose. And if God commands that a particular trial should afflict His people, we can be confident it will be ultimately for our good. But that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Because it means that God, the holy God, who is entirely just, He ordains for us to endure the consequences of sin. He ordains for us to fall victim to the wicked plans of the ungodly. He ordains for us to endure disease and depression and grief. Sometimes we try to soften the blow. We say, well, God didn't ordain it. He just allowed it. But really, that's a distinction without a difference. What He allows, God chooses to allow which means He ordains it. He doesn't cause it necessarily. He doesn't cause sin. He's not the the originator of sin. But He ordained in His sovereign will that you should endure, that you should suffer this particular trial. And my friends, that is a comfort. Because it means this stuff does not happen randomly or outside of God's control. It means that this stuff is not somehow greater than God and able to deflect His will in your life. All of it happens according to His purpose. And His purposes, Romans 8, always serve our good. Which is to say that He's using it all to mold us into the image of Christ. He's using it all to teach us to long for heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. He's using it all to change our orientation so that no longer are we focused on these passing things of a fallen world but we're beginning to look at things that are eternal and kept for us in heaven. Hebrews 12 explains that those trials, those difficulties, those things that hurt, they're part of God's discipline for us. As our loving Heavenly Father, He's using these hard things, these hurtful things, to discipline us in a way that molds and matures us. Now Hebrews 12 tells us, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Right, kids? Dad disciplines you, it hurts. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So we can be confident, whatever the trial that we face, whatever the pain that He he ordains us to endure, we can be confident. God ordained it to bless us. God ordained it to shape us into what we must become. Look at verse 7. Our faith is precious in the sight of God. He compares it to gold. Because of its rarity and its beauty, gold has always been universally recognized as precious. Countless societies have used gold as the standard of that which is valuable. 
Well, Peter tells us God regards our faith as being more precious than gold. Gold is precious and it's strong, and yet ultimately even gold will perish. But not our faith. Our faith will endure eternally. Our faith will unite us to Christ without end. No quantity of gold can even begin to compare with the worth of the Christian's faith. But like gold, our faith must be tested and its purity refined. The gold that is made into things like wedding rings, it's not brought out of the ground that way. Kids, you know that, right? When it's brought out of the ground, it's filled with all kinds of impurities, things that aren't gold. And those impurities weaken the gold. They make it not as precious, not as strong, not as malleable. It's not as good. And so that gold, before it can be used to make something precious like a ring or a gold coin, it has to be refined. The way the refiner does that is he puts the gold in fire. He heats it up and he allows it to grow so hot that it becomes liquid and pretty soon the impurities in it are burned off. But he's got to be careful because if he heats it too much, he'll ruin the gold itself. He's got to heat it enough, but not too much. It's a a careful process. And our faith needs the same. The impurities like doubt and worry and unbelief and worldly cares, these all weaken our faith. And so those impurities must be removed, must be burned off. And that's what God uses the trials of this world, the trials of this life to do. Persecution and abuse by the wicked, temptations to sin and the consequences when we give in. Sickness and suffering and the sorrow of loss, all of that God uses to test and to refine our faith, to make it more pure, more perfect. The result is a faith that is precious indeed in the sight of God. Having endured those trials, our faith is found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns to this earth to judge all who have ever lived, Our faith will be put on display. We shall receive praise for standing firm on God's promises. We shall gain honor for confidently resting in our Savior. We shall know glory that is shared with the Son of God Himself. And our reward shall be communion. Eternal communion with God. We will honor the one who has held us fast, the one who has deepened our relationship with Him, who has used these hard things of life to draw us closer to Him. Won't that be glorious? Faith is so important because it pleases God, but more than that, or alongside of that, I should say, because it unites us to Christ. And so that's the second point that Peter makes here. The faith that secures our salvation. Having spoken of Christ, Peter remarks about how believers love Him. Now surely love is part and parcel of the faith to which we're called. How can we not love the one who gave all to save us? How can we not see how constantly He provides for us and decline to love Him? So Christians love Jesus even though, as Peter says, we've never seen Him. That's stunning when you stop and think of it. We love Him even though we've never laid eyes on Him. 
We cherish Him. We delight on Him, even though we've never physically beheld Him. How does that happen? Well, Peter makes it very clear how it did not happen. It did not happen by them seeing Jesus. Neither Peter nor those who were sent out by His command came with sketches or portraits or images They didn't come seeking to create a mental image of who Jesus was and what He looked like. They didn't rely on the visual arts. But instead they came proclaiming Christ, who He is, what He had done, what makes Him special, how He worked to reconcile us to God. And through that preaching of the gospel, that preaching of Christ, God led them to faith. Romans 10 says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's how these Christians to whom Peter wrote encountered Jesus. Acts 8 says that persecution erupted against the church in Jerusalem. And at that time, all except the apostles were scattered throughout the empire. And verse 4 there says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And now Peter's writing to those to whom they preached. They had never seen an image of Jesus. They had never seen Him in person. But they didn't need a physical image. That would have just confused things. I mean, how can you see a, a realistic, trustworthy image of the one who is fully God? You can't do it without separating His humanity from His divinity. And producing a lie. And a lie could never produce the kind of faith that joins us to Christ. No, it was by the the preaching, the faithful preaching of the Word applied through the miracle of the Holy Spirit's work that drew them to know Christ, to believe in Christ, and even to love Jesus Christ. That is the work of God Himself alone who is the only one who can turn the hearts of men to Christ. He prepares us Young people, you know that, right? You haven't turned to Christ simply because you're just so smart, so wise, so much better. No. It is the Holy Spirit who softens our hearts to be willing to encounter the truth. It is the Holy Spirit who interprets the truth of God's Word to us so that we can understand it. It is the Holy Spirit who causes us to long for something more than the misery of our sin. It is the Holy Spirit who imparts faith in Christ into us. It is the Holy Spirit who teaches us to love Jesus. And He teaches us not just through that initial preaching of the Word, but through the continual proclamation of the Word, and our study of the Word, and our mutual discipleship in and through the Word, and our communion together as we demonstrate the character of Christ to each other. Now, none of that is possible apart from faith, but those with faith are continually drawn to know and to adore and to love Christ more and more and more. And therefore we rejoice. We rejoice because increasingly we come to recognize how immense is the gift God has given us in His Son. We rejoice because we perceive the grace that has been poured out upon us in Christ. We rejoice because of the love of Him who died for us. We rejoice because though we've never seen Him, we know Him and we love Him. And if the Holy Spirit has taught us to love Christ, to believe Christ, to rejoice in Christ... 
then great, says Peter, is our reward. The first reward, the initial reward, is joy. Through faith in Jesus, says verse 8, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's not the kind of joy that is produced by things in this world. Young people, you will be enticed to find your joy in experiences, parties, and substances that will allow you to forget the challenges and the trials of the world for a moment. Experiences that will heighten your senses through the application of danger. all momentary. It passes away almost as soon as you experience it. And then to experience it again, you need a little bit more. You need it a little bit deeper, a little bit more dangerous, a little bit... But it always passes away. The love of Christ, the glory of His salvation, that doesn't pass away. That is a joy that is deep and abiding and continuous. Every morning we awake and we think on Christ and what He has done for us, and that joy returns. Every day as we go through the day, we see the glory of the creation that He has made for us, and we are overwhelmed at His perfect provision and love. Every day as we begin to know Him, as we walk alongside Him, as we learn about Him through His Word, Our eyes are open to the multitude of ways that He has laid out each day in exactly the way that we need it to be laid out for our good and for His glory. And we rejoice. And not only do we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory at the knowledge of Christ and how good He is to us, but also as we await His return, we are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Outcome refers to the goal the complete fulfillment of what we long for. The goal of our faith is the fullness of salvation. Do you understand what that means? It starts with the forgiveness of our sins, the removal of the consequence for our rebellion. But it expands into a renewed relationship with God where we long to have communion with Him. We long to have those times of of speaking to Him, pouring out our hearts to Him, learning what He loves and learning to love that ourselves. It expands beyond that into beginning to reflect Him so that looking upon us, people see something different. They see the very character of Christ. That is the fullness of salvation that we are beginning to obtain and that we will obtain in its fullness in the day of Christ. We are today receiving salvation. And that's true for every one of us who is in Christ. If you believe the testimony of Peter and his fellow apostles, if you trust the promises that the Lord extends to you, if you embrace Him by faith, then your faith secures your salvation and gives you the greatest cause for joy that this world has ever known. After all, that faith in which we rejoice secures the salvation that provoked the prophets, which is the last thing that Peter lays out here. And there we learn that this salvation we have received, The prophets themselves jealously long to know more about it. We need to ponder that. Because it shows us something essential about what God has done for us. 
Peter says in verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. He's talking about the prophets who wrote the Old Testament. These men already knew quite a lot. God had led them to reveal His intention to pour forth grace on a people completely undeserving. He had shown them His plan to send a Savior who would suffer to restore us and who would bring glory to God's people. If we look at the words of the prophets, oh, the things that we see about Jesus, the details about God's plan of salvation, the the insights we gain, about the kingdom that already has been established and that will come in all of its fullness when Jesus returns. And yet there was so much they didn't know. They didn't know when the Savior would come. They didn't know the details about how He would come and how He would accomplish His work. They knew only the outlines of what that glorious kingdom that He would establish would look like. They knew some, but they wanted to know so much more. It was like they had just... It's like on on Thanksgiving... You walk into the kitchen because you're just enticed by all those smells. And you, you reach out and before mom can smack your hand, you grab a little piece of the turkey and you get that taste. And oh, your mouth waters. You want more. And that was what the prophets experienced. They had taken a taste and they wanted to know more. They wanted the whole feast. So they searched and inquired carefully. They read the works of the other prophets intently. They discussed the missing details with other believers. They prayed, asking God to unveil the rest to them. But in the end, they had to remain in the dark. Hebrews 11 verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And Later he says, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God showed them only what their generation needed in order to trust in the Christ who was to come. They were servants of those who would come later, servants of us. They were called to trust God's promises as vague as some of those were. And also to do their part to prepare the way for the Messiah. And folks, that's what they did. And they longed to know more. And not just the prophets, also the angels. The angels wanted to know the details. They could see that the glory of what God was going to do in sending His Son, the servant, was greater than anything He had ever done. The angels longed to know all of the details. Now what does all that tell us? Folks, That earnest longing of prophets and angels alike tells us something important. It tells us how blessed we really are. The salvation we have received is exceedingly precious. The knowledge we have been given is greater than the knowledge given to Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Daniel. We've been given a gift into which the angels longed to look. How grateful to God that should cause us to be. We've been blessed beyond measure. Not only has God revealed to us what He withheld from them, but He's given us the fullness of its substance. In other words, we don't just look at it, we obtain it. Knowing that 
Let us rejoice at the blessing we have been given, worshiping God with joy in our hearts every day, confessing His goodness for all to hear. Let us stand strong. Because yes, we do face hardships and trials. But He reminds us here, despite those trials, we've been given the greatest gift mankind has ever known. Despite those hardships, which every generation has known, We have been given that which previous generations lacked. We know the details. We know the the outworking of the plan. And we know that it really came to pass. Jesus has gone to the cross. He uttered that word of triumph to Telestai. It has been done. It is finished. The victory is won. The king has ascended. He sits on the throne on high. And now we wait only for the full revealing of all the rest. Ought we not to rejoice? Ought we not to stand strong? Ought we not to tell the world, this is my hope, this is my confidence, and no one can rob me of this confidence? We face hardships, trials, difficulties in this world. There's no getting around that. But when we do, we can be confident. God is still on the throne. Jesus is still ordering all things for our good. He's using those trials, those difficulties, those hardships in order to to mold us and shape us and strengthen our faith. He wants us to grow in our love for Him and our knowledge for Him and our relationship with Him. And as we're growing, as we're gaining a deeper and more essential love for Christ, He's enabling us to appreciate the fullness of the gift into which prophets and angels alike longed to look. So rejoice. Rejoice even in the midst of your trials. Celebrate even through your tears, knowing that these trials are temporary. They're momentary in the light of eternity. And what is ours for eternity What has already been bestowed upon us is of greater worth than anything this world could begin to offer. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, you, oh, you are so merciful. You have given us that which is so much greater than the paltry offerings of this world. Teach us to delight in those gifts. Teach us to delight in you, to celebrate your love for us, to rejoice in your sovereignty over us, and to look forward to the full revealing of what you have done on our behalf. Enable us to celebrate even in the midst of our trials. And so, Lord, gain glory through this, your people. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, in response, let us celebrate the love that God shed on that cross in Jesus. The love that He showed in sending His Son. As we sing together number 425, Jesus, lover of my soul. We'll sing all the stanzas, 425.